Scripture reading will be from Psalms 14, 1 through 7. Psalms 14, 1 through 7. The fool has said in, in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. <clears throat> Having all the workers of iniquity, no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call on the Lord. There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. What the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Good evening. I hope you have your Bibles open to the book of Psalms and the 14th Psalm where we just had in our reading. And we will be looking at that psalm in just a moment. This evening we're going to be looking at a subject that I think is incredibly important and extremely relevant for many of us, especially our younger people who might be in school, who might be in uh, middle school and high school, going into college certainly, you're going to be faced and having to battle the controversy of intelligent design. That is, this world was it created by an intelligent being, namely God, as we would profess and believe that the Bible teaches Instead, what many people would propose is the theory of evolution as an alternative to intelligent design. And the theory of evolution has been popularized and dramatized by mainstream media, scientific outlets, and even the entertainment industry. And while I was going through school, the public school system, I think evolution was probably pretty well accepted as something that needed to be taught, but I had some uh, pretty clever teachers that were able to skirt around being able to teach it. I don't know if the public school system is able to do that as much or as easily today. And I know that whenever I was going through college, and so anyone that is teaching nowadays that would be in my generation then they certainly were just indoctrinated with the theory of evolution. The evolutionary theory flies in the face of biblical teaching on the beginnings of life. And just to, we're not going to explore just evolution in and of itself tonight, but we will try to do a, a quick explanation of it as, as best as I can. The theory of evolution does seek to explain the development of simple organisms, like single-celled organisms, to 
complex-celled organisms, multi-celled organisms, through the process of natural selection, which is essentially random chance, and as well as survival of the fittest. And sometimes we might use that phrase, the survival of the fittest, and what I did learn what they mean by that is not that the strongest, biggest person is going to survive. That's not what they mean by that. They mean that whoever is predisposed with the strongest and best genes, that might look like the little runt that is sometimes uh, in a litter of animals or something like that, but that one might have the best genes overall, and that one might be the one that actually survives the longest. Survival of the fittest, it's just the one that has the best chance to succeed, not necessarily the biggest and strongest. Evolution, though, what it cannot answer is the most basic question. What is the beginning or origin of life? Well, it certainly tries to explain the development of life, from one single cell to multi-celled organisms, what it cannot do is tell you where that single-celled organism came from. That's the can that keeps getting kicked down the road in the debates among evolutionary theory. Whenever I was in college and I took biology, I had the professor, he told us that what was becoming a popular theory or it was gaining some traction was that aliens brought life here to this planet. And that is how we began to evolve. And that has gained some traction among the scientific community. You see, it keeps getting kicked in, but that still doesn't answer where did that life begin? That's what evolution does not explain. Darwinian evolution seeks to explain life originating from random occurrences of laws of physics and chemistry, but even in that, that's a self-contradicting theory or statement. You cannot have laws or principles governed by randomness. That would actually show that there is something beyond the randomness, that there is something governing it. Evolution is purposeless. It's random and it's based on chance. Richard Dawkins, one of the most uh, popular, I guess, uh, evolutionists, in his book called The Blind Watchmaker, he talks about the laws, if you will, that govern our world and the physical realm. And how some people have said, it's kind of like, you know, you look at this creation and it doesn't just come from nothing. There had to be design behind it. There had to be someone who created it, like a watchmaker, with cogs and things like that, that designed it and put the springs where they were supposed to. And what uh, Mr. Dawkins said, all appearances to the contrary, the only watchmaker in nature is the blind forces of physics, albeit deployed in a very special way. 
A true watchmaker has foresight. He designs his cogs and springs and plans their interconnections with a future purpose in his mind's eye. Natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered and which we now know is the explanation for the existence and apparently purposeful form of all life has no purpose in mind. It has no mind and no mind's eye. It does not plan for the future. It has no vision, no foresight, no sight at all. If it can be said to play the role of watchmaker in nature, it is the blind watchmaker. And so what he says is that you have someone or at least that nature itself is purposeless and it has, cre- it has originated in life and that we have developed over time to have purpose. So you go from no purpose to purpose in evolutionary thought. And that really becomes the, the, the crux of the matter in this whole discussion is do you believe in a design made by a designer? Because even evolutionists believe that there has been design, albeit it is random in their explanation. But that really makes no sense. This building that we are sitting in, that was constructed, it didn't, we didn't just call Lowe's and say, hey, bring all this lumber here, and then we didn't just set off a bomb, and voila, you had walls that went up, did we? That's not how things work. That's not how anything in this world works. A blind watchmaker is an oxymoron. Those who believe in evolution have come to attack those who have faith in God. What Dawkins goes on to say about those who would believe in God or a creator or an intelligent creator, he says it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, Stupid or insane or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. So you don't have to wonder what he thinks of you if you say that you do not believe in evolution. He's very clear about it. He thinks you're ignorant, stupid, or insane, or maybe even wicked. What the Bible says in Psalm 14 and in verse 1 The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. As David is beginning to explore those who would reject the notion or the very idea of God, he says that it leads to utter chaos. It leads to an an abandonment of morality. Because he says in verse 2, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. The answer is none. In verse 3, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. The theory of evolution has become the religion of humanists and atheists and anyone who would choose to live as if there is no God and seek to please only themselves. And we're going to speak about humanism tonight. If that's a phrase or a word that you're not completely familiar with, humanism is merely an outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance 
to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. Humanist beliefs stress the potential value and goodness of human beings, emphasize common human needs, and seek solely rational ways of solving human problems. That comes from the Oxford Dictionary and how they define humanism. And I want you to notice, even in this definition, it's a faulty definition because they say that humanism is rational, right? That means if you choose to believe in God or in a divine being, divine person, or even in supernatural origins to the beginning of this life, you're not rational. And that's the great debate that they want to have is that they want to set the evolution over here in one corner and humanism and rationality and then faith over here in the other corner. That humanism is considered rational while faith is considered irrational. The Humanist Manifesto, and yes, they do have a manifesto where you can get it in their own words what they believe. Many, they say many kinds of humanism exist in the contemporary world, scientific, ethical, democratic, religious, and Marxist humanism. Free thought, atheism, agnosticism, skepticism, deism, rationalism, ethical culture, and liberal religion all claim to be heir to the humanist tradition. That was in the, first, or in the second Humanist Manifesto. It had to be updated because the first one wasn't good enough. But in the first Humanist Manifesto, it says their first point of belief is this, that religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. Their second point is humanism believes that man is a part of nature and that he has emerged as the result of a continuous process. After looking at all these quotes and those statements, is it any wonder where we are going as a society? And I believe in many ways you could make the argument that it all goes back to the acceptance of this idea of evolution. And that is why they want it taught in public schools. That's why they want to indoctrinate young children with it. And that's why they don't want you to oppose it in any way. This is where we are at. It has led to the destructive politics and immoralities that we see openly celebrated today. All you need to do is read that Humanist Manifesto. I have a copy of it in my office to see what their goals are and how our society has accepted many of the talking points that are portrayed in the legacy media today. And if you're critical of the theory of evolution, they're going to paint you as ignorant and stupid in their own words. As one author said, as a religion, and make no mistake, evolution is a religion of sorts for them. As a religion, Darwinism is intolerant. The Darwinist assumes that what he believes is true, therefore only evidence that supports Darwinism can be valid evidence. Those who propose other theories must be silenced for the good of society. Given all of this, I want us to think about what are the consequences 
of accepting evolutionary thought as truth. What would we expect to see in our society? What would we expect to see as the fallout of this? I think that's what David is contemplating when he says in verse 1 of, of Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. That's the result of rejecting God. Rejecting the notion that God created this world and getting rid of the idea of an intelligent design. What we will look at are some consequences, the fallout, if you will, of evolution. And the first thing that I think that we have to grapple with is that there is a loss of free will. And if you're going to accept the theory of evolution, then you are going to also lose on the notion of free moral creatures. Think and reason with me for a moment. The theory of evolution claims that life has developed by chance, right? That it has developed by chance over a period of billions of years. Our development now is merely a product of the natural order of things through evolutionary means. Our existence is based only in nature, not in a creator. Therefore, man can only by nature do what he does. Man is only subject to nature and has no actual freedom of choice. The things that we do, it's just because of nature. So there is no room in evolutionary thought for free will. There's no room for libertarian choice where you might choose to do one thing over another. While we may not all make the same choices, there is no explanation that they have for freedom of choice and free will. If they do, they begin to lose their arguments. Because if an evolutionist were to grant that we do have free will, where did that free will come from? Where did that freedom of choice come from? What is its source? The very idea of free will demands a supreme, sovereign, and intelligent creator and designer. And any choice implies the ability to choose otherwise. And yet, according to evolutionary thought, is that we are just mere products of nature. That nature is governing us. But what we have to recognize is that libertarian free choice is that power of contrary choice. However, evolution upholds that nature will take its course and determine the intended end of all things. I think it's very clear if you look at Scripture that the Bible shows us that we have free will. That we have the choice to serve God or not, for instance. In the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, a verse that I'm sure many of us are familiar with, but in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua in his closing 
uh, remarks to the people of Israel. He is encouraging them to abandon idolatry and to be faithful to God. And he says in verse 15, If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He says, you have a choice to make. And he says, this lies within you. This is your responsibility to make this choice. It's not going to occur through natural means or evolutionary means. This is going to be your choice. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve the Lord? Or are you going to serve the idols? That kind of choice demands free will. In the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 18, in Ezekiel the 18th chapter, the prophet Ezekiel, he speaks very emphatically about choices that we might make, that people might make. I love a study of Ezekiel chapter 18 because I think it demonstrates several truths. But what the children of Israel were doing, they were kind of passing the buck. They were trying to pass the responsibility off on a previous generation. And Ezekiel has the answer from God that they are the ones who are responsible. And in verse 21, he says, But if the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live, he shall not die. You see that there is the demonstration of a wicked man who turns his life around and begins to do good. Don't you? You continue reading. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he has practiced. He will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? But then notice in verse 24. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery which he has committed and his sin which he has committed for them he will die. You have two very different examples here. Polar opposites, right? In the first situation you have a man who is wicked. He turns his life around. He begins to do what is good. He begins to do what is right. He chooses to make some changes in his life and then... What's the verdict? He will live. God's not going to remember the wicked things that he did. He's going to look favorably upon this man. But then you have a man who's righteous, who does what is right, and then what does he do? He turns his life around for the worst. Not for the better. He begins to do what's evil. He has the power to change his life around. Both of these guys, they make a decision, don't they? They make a choice to change how they were living. A person has the freedom of choosing 
how they are going to live and the way that they are going to lead their life. We all have that choice. And I would contend that that choice comes from the fact that we have a God who created us in His image. A God who made the deliberate choice to create us with free moral agency, with the ability to choose to serve Him and obey Him, or with the ability to disobey Him. We're not machines, we're not robots who have no choice. Jesus, in Matthew, the 21st chapter, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus demonstrates this principle of free moral choice and free will. In Matthew chapter 21, he gives a parable of two sons. And he says in verse 28, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. The same man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. You see, Jesus doesn't have to tell you that there is free moral choice here, does he? It's implicit within the whole story and the parable itself and the command that the Father is giving. He says, go work for me today, son. The first son, he says, no, I'm not going to do it, dad. But then he regrets it and he goes, right? And then the father, he goes to his second son and he says, all right, dad, I will. And then he doesn't go. And he draws some other lessons from this, but... The point being is that there is free moral choice here. But I think the big thing that we have to keep in mind is that if you lose free will, then you also lose the notion of guilt and shame. There can be no construct for feeling guilt or shame. The regret that this one son had whenever he said, no, I will not go, when he told his dad that he would disobey, he felt that guilt, he felt that shame, and it propelled him to change his decision. But in an evolutionary construct, you cannot have the notion of guilt or shame. Because you're just a product of nature. You are just doing what nature wants you to do. The second thing that becomes, I think, pretty obvious is that if you believe in the theory of evolution as a fallout or a consequence is that there's going to be loss of moral standards. Evolution at its heart, it praises randomness. It has no laws. It cannot account for the laws of order and physics without the explanation of a higher being without any kind of authority in law, with man having no free will, then there is no moral law that man must abide by. 
You think about the heinous crimes that are committed, such as murder and abortion, rape, molestation. How can you condemn such actions? The the depreciation of human life, racism and elitism and hate, they are just part of our nature, are they not? If evolution is true, it could not be wrong. Perversions of the flesh, homosexuality, transgenderism, they're excused. Richard Dawkins, in his own words, he said, what's to prevent us from saying Hitler wasn't right. He says, I mean, that is a genuinely difficult question. No, it isn't. (laughs) It's about the easiest question you could ever be given. Murder and prejudice are absolutely wrong and sinful. Whenever you give up the notion of a higher being, of a God who created with laws which we are obligated to answer and give an account to, you lose the grounding of moral standards. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul talks about this very idea. In Romans chapter 1, and while he did not have in view, I don't think the idea of someone who just completely abandoned the whole concept of God, it ends up in the same place. In Romans 1 and verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What Paul is really having in view here is idolatry. But it ends up kind of in the same place, an abandonment of God, an understanding of the one nature of God. He says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Isn't that the whole idea of humanism? That we celebrate the accomplishments of humans rather than the accomplishment of God. And we've rejected the whole notion of God. He goes on in verse 26, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 
describing homosexual acts being committed. He goes on in verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Think about that list. That's where it leads if you abandon the very basis and foundation of morality because you've given up an understanding of God. Humanistic teaching has been that there is no truth except for the truth of our existence and that there is no absolute truth. Yeah, that's an absolute statement, which I've always kind of found as odd. But as a result, the Word of God is not respected and it's certainly devalued. But evolutionists cannot, under, cannot answer for how man has structured itself with laws and governments that impose regulations and moral code. I think in nearly just about every facet of society, murder has been frowned upon. How can you explain that? And if they begin to argue that man should not act as animals, why not? I think now they're, they begin, they're beginning to accept some of this. Because now you can identify as a cat if you want to. And you can't tell them that they're not a cat. I guess they're going to at least try to be consistent. Some of them will be. But why is it that they're not acting in the way that nature intends? What standard are they invoking? Where did that standard even come from if there is a standard that you expect for proper behavior? If they begin to argue that there is a right and appropriate way for us to act and behave, then they're giving up their whole argument for survival of the fittest and natural selection. And if an evolutionist appeals to logic and reasoning, which they will, while saying that they are being rational, where did that rationality come from? Where did logic come from? Where did reasoning come from? If it did not come from an intelligent designer. And certainly they cannot impose their reasoning upon me, which they always want to do. They want to say, if you don't believe in what they say, then you're just ignorant or stupid. That they are the ones who are right. But they can't impose that upon me without appealing to some sort of universal standard. Where did that standard come from? The existence of morality and ethics that is bound upon a society becomes a very troubling issue for those who believe in the theory of evolution. Then obviously you have the loss of a creator. They don't, they don't need a creator for their theory to be upheld. In the book of Genesis... In Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And you see that he superintended everything and he created everything. In verse 11, then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. In chapter 8 of Genesis, in chapter 8 and in verse 22, God is speaking and He says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Have you ever just stopped to ponder that things always happen at the right time, don't they? That the sun rises in the east and sets in the west every day. And it has always been that way. That in the summertime, it gets hot. It doesn't get cold. In the wintertime, it gets cold. It doesn't get hot. There may be variation, of course. But in principle, that these always that's how things behave. Nature is governed by law. Where did that law come from? It's rooted in God. But if you're an evolutionist, you say that there is natural law, but you have no basis for where that natural law came from. Because they recognize the laws of reproduction or the laws of physics and gravity. But they can't explain where that law came from. It's easy for me, isn't it? It's easy for you if you believe in God. The answer is God is the one who established it. And I think it's very dangerous whenever Christians begin to play around with the idea of theistic evolution. I don't know if that's a new word or anything for some of you, but theistic evolution, theism is just the belief in God. And what some Christians have played around with is the idea that God created through the means of evolution. And it's kind of this nice little neat compromise. I think that's very troubling, though. It's a contradiction at its very root. Because evolution believes in chance and randomness. God is purpose and planning and design. Evolution denies everything that theism would imply. The very existence of the heavens and earth Prove that there is order. In the book of Psalms, in Psalm 19, in Psalm 19 and in verse 1, it says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. But when you do away with the Creator, you do away with law. Thus, there can be no sin. 
If there's no sin, there's no need for salvation or Savior. Following the theory of evolution, it leads to the death of God. Frederick Nietzsche in 1882, you've probably seen the quote, God is dead. And you might think, well, he was a proponent of atheism. Maybe he was. I'm not sure of what his religious beliefs were. But that's not what he meant when he made that statement. He said, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has not has yet owned, has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? He wasn't celebrating the fact that God is dead. It's not a celebration of atheism. He was looking at the ramifications of a society that had embraced its own self-worth and celebrated their own accomplishments in light of the enlightenment, the advancements in medicine, science, mathematics, and technology where man felt as if they were entirely self-sufficient and did not need God. That's why he said God is dead and we have killed Him. To which I think he is absolutely right. That is where you get to with the theory of evolution in humanistic thought. That's not all that we lose. There is loss of life after death. Because under evolutionary thought, you have this world being billions of years old and the universe being even older. Evolution has made this material and physical universe and life into eternity itself, haven't they? And so after you die, poof, you're gone. There certainly would be no hell. There is no eternal bliss or paradise to look forward to. Once you die, that is it. As the Humanist Manifesto states, rather science affirms that the human species is an emergence from natural evolutionary forces. As far as we know, the total personality is a function of the biological organism transacting in a social and cultural context. There is no evidence that life survives the death of the body. I'm a big Beatles fan. If you didn't know, I love Paul McCartney and John Lennon. I love and appreciate so much what they have done musically. But boy, John Lennon was wrong when he wrote the words to imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. No heaven, no hell, right? 
Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. That's interesting. If you go look at the Humanist Manifesto, they want to do away with all nationalities. John Lennon, he knew what he's talking about here. He said, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. As you may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. The truth is, though, there is God. And there is life after death or existence after death. That we have to give an account to a Creator for how we have lived our life. In the book of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, after Solomon has explored everything that there is under the sun, life with God, life without God, he's explored it all. And he says in the conclusion of this book, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw nigh when you will say, I have no delight in them. By the time you get to the end of the very end of the chapter, in the very end of the book, he says in verse 13, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. The fact that there is a Creator, that there is a God who exists and designed everything that we see, it means and implies very clearly that we will give an answer for how we live our life. And that after you die, there is existence even in either in paradise or in hell. Eternal punishment. Thankfully, we are free moral agents and we can choose how we live our life. We can choose to do good and not evil so that we can Enjoy an eternal reward and life in paradise with God, our Creator in heaven. I think one of the final consequences that we're going to look at tonight is that if evolution is true, there is loss in meaning and purpose of life. Isn't there? If, if my existence and if your existence is just by natural causes and random chance, guess what? There is no purpose for your existence. There is no planning or forethought for your existence. You just simply are. And life essentially becomes meaningless at that point. Evolution does not answer where life comes from. And it certainly cannot answer why there is life. You just have mere existence. However, because we do have a Creator, there is meaning for our lives. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, that's what Solomon is contemplating. 
as he says in verse 1, remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Why? Because eventually life is going to be challenging where you don't enjoy life, where you're going to be ready for your life to come to an end. If you live to be at a ripe old age, where you're not going to be able to see anymore with your eyes, where you're going to feel the aches and the pains, and you're going to long for something better than this life. Maybe some of you are there. And he says in verse 5, Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags himself along. The caperberry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. He says in verse 7, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it? This life is going to come to an end. Earlier in Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3, in chapter 3, in verse 2, he said, There's a time to give birth and a time to die. And that's why he comes to the conclusion that you need to serve God. Remember God when you're young. Make it your purpose in life when you're young to serve God. Because life is going to become more and more challenging as you get older. You're going to have harder, a harder time coming to faith and turning away from things that you are doing and living the way that you're living. The conclusion, he says, is this. Fear God and keep His commandments. That's what gives you purpose in life. The fact that God exists, the fact that there are His laws and His commandments, that is true meaning and fulfillment. But if you've given up on the idea of God, there is no true meaning and fulfillment in life. And if you're living a life of practical atheism, and what I mean by that of practical atheism is that you kind of believe in God or you say you believe in God, but you live as if there is no God. You live a life of hypocrisy. You're living without purpose and fulfillment in your life as well. These are the consequences of evolution. But it is only with God's existence that you begin to have free will, where you can choose and make choices to come to believe in God and follow His laws and standards, that you have an answer, an explanation of a creator, an architect, a designer behind everything. That there is existence after death and that there is meaning and purpose in life. The big lie that humanists and evolutionists and agnostics and atheists want you to believe 
is that they have rationality and logic on their side. And that if you believe in God, then you don't. Don't believe that for a minute because it is a lie. Faith itself is built upon reason and logic and consequences. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, in Hebrews chapter 11 and in verse 1, the Hebrew writer says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Some of your translations might say the evidence of things not seen. Faith demands evidence. You're looking at something and you're able to test it and see. While you may not be able to see God, you can at least see the evidence of God's work. In verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Faith is a system of drawing conclusions based upon evidence. It seems to me that you have two choices. You can believe that everything that exists came from nothing or by random chance. Or you can believe that there is a cause behind everything. Which one will it be? Because it's only through faith in God and Christ that you will have the hope of eternal life. Will you believe that God exists? Will you look at the evidence that is around you and not be in denial? But will you believe that God was behind it? That He created you with a purpose. A purpose to live for Him. And that He gave us laws and commands that we are subject to obey. And in being subject to obey His commandments, will you give your life to Him and follow Him? Tonight, if you're not a Christian, will you not become one? We implore you to give your life to the Lord. And if you have become a child of God, but you've not been faithfully serving Him and following Him. You've doubted in His existence and in His goodness. Will you not repent and come back to Him? If we can help you in some way tonight, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?